Special thanks went to Michael Avila for making a donation to Major Spoilers. Mike, this one's for you. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, Madman Drummers, Bummers, Indians in the Summer with a Teenage Diplomat, Tintins in the Dumps as the adolescent pumps his way into his hat. With a boulder on my shoulder, feeling kind of older, I review Avengers Merry-Go-Round. Batman's covered by Steven, who's sneezing and wheezing. The Calliope crashed to the ground. Some silicone sister with a manager, mister, told me a bear reads comics. She said, I'll turn you on, Sonny, to something strong. Online comics with the funky breaks. And ghost-busting Mozart was checking out the weather chart to see if it was safe outside, while Huey, Dewey, and Louie looked at me kind of screwy and asked if Boom's new comics I tried. Some brimstone, baritone, anti-cyclone, rolling stone preacher from the east said, Crow or Servo, the die is thrown, but either hits my funny bone, because that's where they expect at least. Some swordsmith assassin was standing on the corner and watching the young girls dance, and some fresh-stone moonstone was messing with his frozen zone, reminding him of the major spoilers podcast on the air! Hey everybody, welcome to another issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast, all part... Mama always told me not to stare into the eyes of the sun, but Mama, that's where the fun is. I said good day. <laughs> all part <laughs> of the Major Spoilers Experience, you're back for another exciting issue this week. We've welcome got some very back. cool things, we've got some reviews coming up in a moment, and then later, we're going to step outside of our zone of safety and take a look at... Tintin, all the way. Can we from step Belgium. outside of the cone of silence? Yes, the Belgian creation Tintin. We will be talking about him later in the show. But first, let's talk about some news. News. You know what that means? What's that? It's time to spin the wheel of morality and check out our news hostility scoreboard. That's right. This week we've got three to choose from. We've got a newly announced um, comic reader called Longbox. It thinks that it has the solution for digital comics. News this week from Boom that they've landed the Disney Books line, all the Duck Books, as well as Mickey Mouse, as well as Cars, Invincible, Muppet Show, and all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we've got some reactions to Ghostbusters 3. So who wants to spin that wheel? Let's see where it lands. <laughs> spin it again, Matthew, because I'm trying to find my... My dice program. Oh, my dice program. Bum, bum, ba, wow. All right. And we ended up with... Number three, number three, number three, number three. We ended up with number... Three, number three, number three, number three, number three. Number three, actually. Number three. <laughs> Your dice program is like my new best friend. It's a silly dice program, but it works. We may mm. use it on the... Uh, on an upcoming podcast involving Dungeons and the Dragons. Ooh. So it looks like the Ghostbusters movie is finally going to, I should say the new Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters 3, mm -hmm. is slowly starting to move out of just jibber-jabber and into reality. It looks like uh, Dan Aykroyd, uh, Bill Murray, uh, 
what's his name? Uh, Harold, Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis are all going to come back. No word on Ernie Hudson. Whatever happened to him? Mm-hmm. Ernie Hudson was the uh, the prison warden on Oz for about six years, and I haven't seen him on anything since. And uh, no word on Sigourney Weaver or any of the other cast. But Dan Rick Aykroyd, Moranis. Rick Moranis, I no word on him either. Or uh, what's her name? Annie Potts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does look like Bill Murray's back, and that's what people are excited about. And the way Dan Aykroyd is talking about it all across the intard webs, he mm-hmm. says that it's time to bring in a new generation. So this mm-hmm. is going to be kind of like, I guess people are likening it, likening it to the new Star Trek movie, where it's kind of a reboot, but kind of a reinfusion where it's going to be the old Ghostbuster franchise handing over to a new Ghostbuster franchise. Mm-hmm. They haven't said who the new guys would be. Hopefully not Dane Cook. Hopefully. Uh, Dane hopefully Cook. not mm-hmm. Shia LaBeouf. Oh, you'd Shia LaBeouf doesn't do comedy. He thinks he's a serious actor. Yeah. Uh, so what do you guys think of, of Ghostbusters coming back after, what, <clears throat> 20 years, 20 plus years? Something. Well, the last movie came out in uh, 85, didn't it? Was it really? Man, that was the year Rodrigo was born. No. (laughs) I was born. The first movie came out in 84. I think the second movie came out in 89. Was it? Wow. We'll have to look. I think it was 89 because it was all all over movies the summer after my freshman year of college. I watched Ghostbusters 2 like 100 times. 100 times. Rodrigo, what do you think of uh, Ghostbusters 3? I'm I'm excited. I think it could if if Dan Aykroyd's involved, if, if the creative if the same creative team's involved, but they've realized that there needs to be a modern sensibility to it. Right. Then I'm on board. I think that this could be a really good movie, especially if they're using kind of Star Trek as their, as their template. Mm-hmm. They have, um, you know, the first star or the first Ghostbusters movie also used a lot of lens flares as the ghosts escape from the uh, the. Mm-hmm. the uh, that's right, but there was a reason for them in that. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think Star Trek is an interesting comparison because if you break it down to the character level, to me, the center of Star Trek is the Spock Kirk Bones triad that whole emotionless guy, incredibly emotional guy, and then the, the leadership guy who balances it. And Ghostbusters was always kind of about, you know, Ray being overexcitable. And Egon being, you know, esoteric to the point of, of uselessness. And then Venkman being just amoral enough to aim both of them in the right direction. Right. You know, and, and it's, it's, a very similar, it's a very similar dynamic. As long as you can capture that dynamic, as long as, you know, you've got something going on. To, to me, it wouldn't be a Ghostbusters movie without that Venkman character making the sly remarks and well, then that's why having, I'm hoping they don't go with a Dane Cook for a new kind of Venkman character. Because well, I would think, almost be right up his alley with some of the other roles that he's played. And I know Dane he's been Cook talked as Ray, about. As the Ray Stance character, however, yeah, I would buy. Yeah. I just don't want him near the movie. I, because, I mean, it, Ray is always excited about everything. And, you know, if you take that Dane Cook uh, crackhead intensity and you, you apply it to a character like Ray Stance or a, a Ray Stance analog, I'd like it. And then you have to have somebody who's just completely humorless and, and who does that that thing that Harold Ramis did so well. I collect spores, molds, and fungus. Yes. Where are you or, say, get, there you go. I was gonna say if if this is going if, if the original Ghostbusters are going to be in it, then I would hope that this doesn't just turn into Muppet Baby or, or Tiny Toons Ghostbusters. That you right. don't have a little Egon, a little Ray, and a little uh Peter. 
They hey, might. Yeah. Little Peter. Hey, Speaking of Little Peter, uh, Stephen, do you have an opinion? I uh, I was trying to look to see what the rating of the first Ghostbusters was. It had to have been a PG because my mom would never have let me see it if it was uh, rated It was R. one of the first movies that was PG-13, I believe. Yeah, Gremlins was the first one to hit the PG-13, but yeah, you know... I'm interested in seeing the franchise recharge, and I love the first movie. Didn't care for the second movie all that much, um, just because it seemed to be... I don't know, it's it, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like the first Star Wars movie, Episode Four, mm-hmm. was really good. It had a specific look to it, but then when you moved into Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, suddenly it got this glossy kind of mm-hmm. feel to it, and that's what happened with Ghostbusters 2. So I'm hoping in Ghostbusters 3 they're able to return it back to a comedy horror movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. got it's got just enough of the funny, but it's got just enough of the scarum to make you go, "Hey, this could be actually a, a, a good a good start." And to have all three of the original well, people, Ramus, Aykroyd, and, and Murray back in it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I'm I'm instantly perked up on that. Well, and the thing about that first Ghostbusters movie is it had some very adult moments. Yeah, there were some really strong horror moments. There was some very you know. It was implied, but there was some very sexual content yes, during one was. of Ray's dreams. Right. I don't know if it was and, a dream. you know, Zool, and Zool, you know, translating herself through Sigourney Weaver back when she was female, um, <laughs> was, well, I mean, was sexy. And that was one of the things, one of the first things that oh, I remember no. looking at and going, oh, well, Don't cross the streams, Matthew's pretty girl. <laughs> but, you know, it. I'd like to see more Ghostbusters. I would like to, you know, I would hope that they would maintain that level of pseudo-intellectualism that was in the first one because somebody tried to convince me that Zool and Gozer actually existed. And I'm like, no, Zool and Gozer were invented by Dan Aykroyd. There there is no Sumerian deity called Gozer. I'm just interested, I mean, who am I to speak? But, you know, Dan Aykroyd, over the years, when you see him like in Blues Brothers... He's the skinny rail of a guy. Mm-hmm. And now you look at him and he's like... Well, even, he's, even in Ghostbusters, he was starting to get a little chubby. Well, but, yeah, yeah, but he still had kind of the elongated face. Now it's kind of a rounded face. <laughs> well, well, Steven. <laughs> I know. He's old. I should talk. Yeah, I know. Uh, when, you, it, when you saw him in like Saturday Night Live and yeah, he the was first like 20. movies... Yeah. He was 18, 19, 20. And now he's, yeah. you know, he's a much older man. But the thing that he really brought to the movie was not... His acting, Aykroyd was one of the major writing forces, one of the major creative forces behind the film. Yep. And as a writer, yep. Aykroyd is to me more important and more you know relevant than he would ever have been in any of his supporting roles. I can't think of a really strong Aykroyd lead performance. I can think of some great Aykroyd scripts, some phenomenal scripts mm-hmm. that he worked on, mm-hmm. and I can think of a few you know secondary characters that were really memorable. But he's not. I mean, he's not the acting force behind it, as far right. as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. That's Bill Murray. Well, he's I, the guy who concepts conceptualizes it. You know, he's he's the Stephen. Yeah. And Venkman is the Matthew. Uh, it looks like though. Hey, I'm it looks like uh, Lee Eisenberg, Gene uh, Stupnitsky are the writers behind Ghostbusters Three. Uh, it does look like Sigourney Weaver and Ernie Hudson will be back in this third cool. installment. And right now it just has uh, Rick Moranis listed as rumored to be back in the rumored. piece as well. Ghostbusters well, he's, 3. You know, a big fat guy now, too. Yes, he is. 
Ghostbusters 3 expected to be oh, in theaters guy. in 2012. Now, there was a Ghostbusters video game that just came out. It is. And Did I, you have a chance to play it? I haven't had a chance to play it, but I've heard from multiple people that it's really good. That's what I hear, too. And I figured you're I, our game guy that you would have... Yeah, I just I just catch all the slack on like video games, role playing <laughs> games. Rodrigo, you get on that. <laughs> yes, like, next week, Rodrigo, we want to hear. I don't about own an Xbox. Well, we'll have to find one for you. Awesome. All right, everybody. If you want to find out more about the Ghostbusters three movie, or if you'd like to voice your thoughts, just head over to the Majorspoilers.com website. You can also find out about this long box digital comics reader, as well as news on Boom Studios and its tie with Disney comic books. Let's see, merchandise. Oh, Matthew wrote a note here that we're supposed to plug the merchandise again. Plug we've the got bear. Some, we've got some Bear Reads comic books t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Hot items at the Major Hot. Spoilers merchandise store. Rodrigo's got one. How did, how did it work out for you? Oh, it was pretty good. I got. I, I went to this like barbecue thing. And, and, and these, you got barbecue sauce all over it. And I got barbecue bear. sauce all <laughs> over it. No, and these girls were like, oh, that's a cute bear t-shirt. And I was like, I made it. And they're like, no, you didn't. This guy Dante did. <laughs> so they called me out on it. Well, yeah. I got one for my son for his birthday, and he wore it on his birthday, and he got a kick out of it. Normally, when it comes to clothes, he fusses and fights about everything he wears. He saw the Bear Reads Comics t-shirt, put it right on. Mm-hmm. So if you would yep. like to help out Major Spoilers, you can head over to the Major Spoilers Merchandise Store. Yep. You can pick it in a variety of sizes and a variety of colors. Not all Don't sizes, pick it, not never all heal. colors. Uh, but you do have that available to you, and it would help also, us out tremendously. Also, I would like well. to make a, a, a quick shout-out to everyone who immediately said, I would buy a shirt of that in the <laughs> comment section. That is, in fact, a binding verbal contract. We will be contacting you about purchasing your shirt soon, and if you have not purchased your shirt, uh, the law firm of Peterson Likes Boucher and McFadden may be contacting you soon. All right, we're done with the news, which means it's time to jump <laughs> into Review! Got to throw in the extra trill so they don't sue me. Okay. Uh, this week we've got three reviews. One, a super advanced review, about a month early review from Rodrigo. I've got a DC review and rounding out uh, to uh, cancel out any favoritism. Uh, we've got a Marvel review as well. So who wants to Did kick you us say off? Marvel. Well, Marvel I'm late, review. so I'll go okay. first. All right, let's do uh, let's do you, Matthew. I want to start out by being late. I believe this shipped last Wednesday. Mighty Avengers number twenty six. One of the, I think it's twenty six monthly Avengers titles. Wow. Uh, this one uh, is actually headlined by a kind of an old school Avengers team. Featuring sort of a giant man, the Vision and the Scarlet Witch, a Captain America, Hercules, Quicksilver, and uh, a young girl who changes size. So it's very similar to the early lineup of the Avengers. Uh, this, of course, is the book headlined by Hank Pym. Okay. Uh, issue 26 is comes he out still on the still heels of is he, is he crazy still? He's not, actually. Um, he's still odd. And this series has really tried to set up Hank as... A very strange, you know, an, an offbeat character, but still a brilliant mind mm-hmm. to where his mind is making jumps that even Reed Richards hasn't been catching. Mm. In the last issue, uh, Hank went to Reed and requested that he be given back a specific device that the former Goliath, Bill Foster, had that fell into Reed's hands when Goliath was murdered during the Secret Wars. Mm-hmm. Reed said no. Uh, Reed and Hank argued. Reed informed Hank that he understood Pym particles better than Hank, and Hank responded with, and I quote, bitch, it's on. 
Mm-hmm. And end quote. So oh, no, uh, Hank and his his mighty Avengers are about to basically pull an Ocean's Eleven on the Baxter Building. Wow. Now uh, let me ask you this: in this whole again, I don't follow a lot of what's going on with with uh, Marvel and especially Dark Reign. Mm-hmm. Are these mighty Avengers? Are they part of the 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 bad guys, or are they all good yeah. guys? You're uh, the the bad quote unquote guys are the Dark Avengers. Oh, okay. Led by Norman Osborn as the Iron Patriot. Iron Patriot. This yeah. team is Hank Pym, consisting of old school Avengers, and honestly, there's a lot of zealots on this team, in that they have Quicksilver and Hercules and the U.S. Agent, mm-hmm. characters who are known to be quick to fight. And, you know, leap into battle. Cool. But they also have the services of Amadeus Cho, uh, the Vision and Joe Costa, who are both uh, artificial creatures, and, of course, Hank himself. So are they all registered heroes? They are absolutely unregistered, I believe. Okay, so they're all fighting in the underground. Yep. With the exception of Hank, who was registered, and I don't know if he still is, all of these characters were essentially unregistered because Quicksilver was a villain. The U.S. agent ran to Canada. Hercules fought with Captain America on the side of the, uh, well, let's call it the right side, but the non-registration heroes. Okay. All right. Um, This issue kicks off with a little bit of the fight sequence, uh, some backup from last issue where they first attacked, and a little bit more, um, let's just call it creepiness. Okay. Uh, Hank. Hank Pym and Joe Costa. Now, Joe Costa is a robot who considers Hank to be essentially her parent. With the brain engrams of Hank's dead wife. And they're making out. Hey, hey all so right. It's, yeah, it's incredibly creepy. But they attack the Baxter building in such a way that Reed immediately has Sue and the children evacuate. And by taking Sue out of the equation, Hank has officially taken the most powerful member of the Fantastic Four out of the battle. It's a brilliant move. And then he immediately sidetracks the Thing and the Human Torch with a fight that seems to be the Red Ghost and the Red Hulk, but turns out to be a Red Herring. Ah, I see what you did there. And he personally takes on Reed Richards by setting off Reed Richards' new scroll sensors. Um, He basically sticks a little scroll DNA on a bunch of ants, and Reed all of a sudden thinks that they're under attack by 400 scrolls. Wow. Which is, yeah, it's actually a really brilliant move. And... It gets to the point where he he's there, and the only thing that he forgot is that everybody loves Reed Richards, and Reed Richards always gets the upper hand. He's sort of Marvel's Batman like that. Reed has actually built a room based on a, a, a man named Zeno of Aaliyah, who I'm not familiar with. But Zeno is apparently the person who first theorized the paradox that if you cross a space mm-hmm. and you forever are only able to cross half the space, you will never make it to the other end. Right. So Reed has created a room where you can only get halfway there. Huh. Yeah, that really can't happen. But it's cute. There's some fighty, fighty. There's some fighty, fighty, fighty. And finally, Hank outsmarts Reed Richards. They end up teleporting somewhere into the universe. And Reed Richards sees... Whatever Hank Pym's secret plan is, what he's calling Salvation 2. Now, Salvation 1 was the android that Reed created to fight when he was a member of the Mighty or of the original Avengers mm-hmm. to pretend to be a hero and try and save him after he had beaten his wife and was nearly being thrown out of the team. It went horribly wrong and it ended up with Hank in jail after injuring a lot of civilians. So 
the phrase salvation too, it should immediately raise some bells with people's mind. But Reed gets one look at whatever it is, and we don't see it, and hands over the device and sends Hank and his Avengers on their way. And he tells them, you know, absolutely, you have my support. Take the device. And whatever it is that Hank is planning is apparently brilliant enough that Reed Richards, A, didn't think of it, and B, is willing to support it. Cool. And at the end of the issue, they they set up a new Avengers headquarters, and somehow Jocasta, or Yocasta, or however one wants to pronounce her name, Yo-Costa. ends up becoming Yo, part Costa. of the headquarters. Oh, cool. Awesome. So that's kind of neat. She's not actually a member. And it issue the issue ends with kind of a cliffhanger as Hank says, okay, you've all been with me. Now it's time for phase two. Neat. Dance so the party. beginning the beginning of the issue had some good moments to it, but it was it, it felt kind of by the numbers. It felt right. a little cliche up to the point where Hank and Reed Hank basically bared his hand to Reed and Reed went, Oh, okay, you're right. I did not see that coming. And when we get to the end where Hank, you know, kind of says, and now it's time for phase two. I really want to know what it is that he's up to. It's a really nice cliffhanger. It's got me wondering exactly what this is. And it's one of those cliffhangers that I don't think they can ever really live up to. Yeah. But in a book like Mighty Avengers, which has been kind of a month to month thing, it's good. It's, you know, irrelevant. It's good. It's bad. It's good. It's I don't know what it is. To have a, a cliffhanger really make me want to read the next issue is, you know, kind of an achievement. Um, Dan Slott, of course, is a, a writer that I enjoy, and the art is by a gentleman named Segovia, mm-hmm. which I believe is the same company that handles my mortgage. <laughs> or maybe that's what how, how long has Dan Slott been writing Mighty Avengers? Three or four issues. Um, well, since the PIM takeover, so I think five issues now. So is that when Mighty Avengers suddenly got a little bit better for you then? Mighty Avengers um, was actually good for about the first six issues, although it was really slow and really frustrating. Mm-hmm. And then there were several issues that I could take or leave. And then there were some Mark Bagley issues that were interesting. Then they fought Doctor Doom, which I I cannot, and this is a personal preference, I can't read anything with Doctor Doom in it written by Michael Bendis. Because Michael Bendis tries, Brian Michael Bendis tries to write Doctor Doom as, you know, another schmuck from Sheboygan. Mm. And the voice is never quite right for me, so it's never really satisfying. And also, his doom uses a lot of magic, and he uses magic in the Zenyata Mondata school of, of magical incantation, so it drives me up the freaking wall. Nah. But this Maybe issue was quite particular. Good. I'm actually going to go with a four slices of meatloaf. Oh, four slices of meatloaf. Excellent. A nice. really nice job for Marvel, something that brought me into... I was kind of borderline on this title. I could take it or leave it with a lot of Avengers titles out there. Mm-hmm. They need something to differentiate it. And I think this issue finally did it. And it's one of the first issues where I haven't felt their ongoing sense of crap on Yellow Jacket. Right. Which is definitely something that I'm behind. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Matthew, for a look at Mighty Avengers number 26. Look for it at your local comic book store out last week. Uh, for me, I'm picking up. Uh, the first issue of an all-new monthly series from DC Comics, written by Paul Dini, with art by Dustin Nguyen. It's Batman Streets of Gotham. Ooh. Now, Batman Streets of Gotham, I'm, you know, I really, really enjoyed Paul Dini when he was writing uh, Detective Comics, because he would tell a detective story in each issue, sometimes most of the time done in one. So it's interesting to see what happens when we kind of take the bat out of 
a bat title and just kind of let the city grow and mm-hmm. tell its own tale, which is kind of what I like. And that so it makes it just a title, right? Yeah, to, you know, it's the streets of Gotham. And this one really, for the most part, for, I would say, eh, the better part of the entire issue, Batman and Robin only make brief cameo appearances. You know, we get to see what's going on in the rest of Gotham. We get to see Commissioner Gordon going up to a, a jewelry store and trying to figure out what all the commotion is and, and why all the cops are around, only to find out that Harley Quinn is inside trying to make a legal purchase, but because of her... The notoriety, they set off the alarms and caused, you know, half of, of Gotham Central to descend upon uh, the store. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's kind of a creepy thing. Now, Paul Denny is really pretty good about, I don't know, creating some good moments and also some creepy moments. There is a scene in here where this fat guy hey. is trying to... I mean, we prefer a, the term gravitationally enhanced. We we see this this tub of lard trying to hey. pick up a ten year old girl, a ten year old prostitute on the street, and that's kind of really kind of creepy. Nice, but in the process, somebody, some big hunk of thing, uh, shows up and beats the beats the guy up and goes on his way. And so we're kind of starting to in the in the first I don't know six or seven pages starting to see what goes on on the streets of Gotham. And then we see some strange guy walk by the little 10-year-old girl and start to go into th- into this uh, inner monologue that we hear, inner dialogue, where he's saying, oh, she doesn't realize I just infected her, doesn't realize that I just, I just poked her or pricked her. She thinks it might just be a bug bite. And we find out that it's the Firefly that's doing this conversation. He is in the Inferno Club, which is, I think most people would remember from Final Crisis, or maybe not if you didn't read Final Crisis. Nope. Uh, I don't remember the them, but I did Club. read Final Crisis. Maybe it's the Volcano Club. It's hard to say. But uh, Firefly has this plan on how he kind of got gypped during the whole Final Crisis event, and he kind of wants to bring back his, his power and do things. And he starts talking about how he's been walking all throughout the city, pricking people and injecting them with this formula. Now, in order to appreciate what's going on here... And this is, I guess, kind of a good thing, kind of a bad thing. You kind of have to have known what happened in Final Crisis. Hmm. You kind of have to know what happened in Battle for the Cowl. And you kind of have to know, well, yeah, you have to know what happened in Battle for the Cowl with Return of Black Mask, uh, who injected all of the escapees from Arkham with this uh, formula that would cause their heads to melt or something like that uh, so that they do his will. Well, Firefly has adjusted this and included his own little concoction so that when he sets off the signal that sets the the chemicals off, people just start catching on fire all throughout the city. And it's apparent from the size of these fires and the amount of these fires that he's been at this for quite some time. Because when Batman and Robin, which Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne, or I guess Dick Wayne and, and Damian Wayne show up, um, all of a sudden they look and literally half the city is on fire again and so that's the main story of of batman streets of gotham the pacing is interesting i like to see stories set in the city that don't necessarily have to have the hero element in there it's good to see the hero come in and do things Mm -hmm. but i think this kind of creepy gritty dirty side of the city is an interesting look as well i love dustin Wynn's art uh I I just think his stuff is brilliant. Seeing all of the Batman supporting cast or a lot of the Batman supporting cast in here is really interesting as well. So for this first story, the main story, 
I'm giving it like four stars, four slices of meatloaf on this because it is that good. Now, this is a new ongoing monthly series from DC Comics that has the cover price $3.99. And we know that a lot of companies, Marvel, is really jacking up the prices of their books, but they're not increasing the page count. And DC this past weekend at Heroes Con kind of made a snarky comment uh, that says, hey, you know, while other companies are jacking their prices up to $3.99 and keeping the page count the same, we're giving you a little something extra in your comics for that $3.99 price. And so we do get to see some additional pages. And in this case, we've got the backup story in, in uh, the Streets of Gotham, which is Manhunter. And it's a little, what is this, an eight page? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine page backup story featuring Manhunter. Now, I'm not a big Manhunter fan. I know that there's a lot of followers of Manhunter who were really jazzed on uh, the series when it first came out and then rallied to get the series brought back again before it was canceled. Um, So I think that this backup is really fitting because it will allow those Manhunter fans a chance to see the further tales of of the the DA. And in fact, here she becomes um, the DA of Gotham City. She's the new district attorney. And her predecessor was killed, and so her first job is to find out who killed the previous district attorney. And so we kind of lead that up into a cliffhanger. Um, again, I'm not such a big fan of, of Manhunter. For me, the story's about a three slices mm-hmm. of meatloaf rating. Uh, I do like the fact that DC is giving us a lot more story, even if it's a backup story, which I read and enjoyed. I just don't care for the character. Um I like that fact. I like the art by Dustin Wynn. I love Paul Denny's writing. So when we average this all out, it's like three and three-quarter slices of meatloaf. Hmm. Complicated. How does yeah. three and four average out to three and three-quarters? Three and four? Because I'm giving a little extra something for DC for uh, giving us a bonus backup for the price. See, I'm I'm bothered by that backup because I'm one of the people who really supports and enjoys Manhunter. Yeah. But I'm not sure I want to buy a bat title to get eight pages of Manhunter. Because well, and see, that's the argument that people are making with Blue Beetle as well. How many people want to go out and buy Booster Gold in order to get the Blue Beetle backup? Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, it's a, it's an interesting discussion. I mean, me being a DC reader, I'm fine with having an eight-page backup. I thought that the backup worked in um, this uh, Trinity series <laughs> that, that DC put out this last year. And so mm-hmm. I kind of already built into it right here. And I do like the idea of the backup story. The backup story at least gives DC a chance to test out characters, to test out stories. Even if they want to introduce a new character at some point in time, they can do it in a backup and see oh, how it don't, grows. No, 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 don't do that. Uh, but, I mean, that's how I mean that's how Batman essentially got started, right? I mean, he was kind of no. an additional story in this uh, detective comics that had, what, Fu Manchu and had uh, Martian Manhunter in it. As well, no. He was the lead feature in Detective Comics number twenty-seven. He okay. had the cover. Okay, but the point is, you have all these other, <laughs> you have all of these other characters in there that you can grow and and go off of. So I'm perfectly see, okay with that. I, I I like the concept. I I'm still waiting to see if the execution works. And I well, it's I not really... going to, unfortunately. Well, yeah. Six months down the road, the eight-page feature will be gone. We'll be back to twenty-two pages at four bucks. Mm-hmm. You're so negative. Why are you going to be so no, negative? No, I'm not being negative. I'm being realistic. Rodrigo, what do you think no, of backup Realistic stories? is not the same as negative. What, what do you think of backup stories? 
I like him just fine. I think it, it's nice to get to the end and, and see that there's another backup story because I never I never research this stuff ahead of time. Right. So to see that kind of thing is good. Um, Marvel does that every once in a while, um, but they haven't done it recently in a long time. Well, I tell you what, Matthew reviewed it last week on on the uh, website, but uh, Captain America six hundred. I don't know how many pages are in that, Matthew. Eighty pages. Fifty-seven thousand. I don't know. Like it's a it's a hefty issue. Of all mini stories, mm-hmm. an anthology tale for five bucks. Now that is worth the five bucks. Yeah, and if people didn't go out and purchase that, I would do that. I wouldn't mind if there was a book like that from from DC as well that kind of had these anthology stories. Uh, they keep trying it. I mean, Marvel, uh, Marvel. I don't know. Do they? Do, is there like Strange yes. Tales title still out? Uh, yeah. Astonishing or, Tales is out right now. Right. And and nobody will read it because there it's not Wolverine or you know a major character on the cover each. Exactly, month. both companies go back and forth, and they, you know, every couple years they're like, okay, well let's try it again, you know, and they we've been introduced to Man Thing seventy thousand times, and he just can't carry a book. He's a great character. Right. Well, but you see, that's the thing. You've got let's say six months to try out a character in eight pages, mm-hmm. and you're essentially telling maybe two issues worth of stuff to see if people are really interested in that. Now, Matthew, you said you're not interested in in this concept. I am a fan of the backup story. I just have a problem with the utilization that you specifically designed. Backup stories are not a place to launch a main character because if you launch a main character as a backup, that main character will be perceived sometimes eternally as a second banana, as a backup character. If you look at Booster Gold... In 1984, all of a sudden, blam, Booster Gold is on the stands. Right. And Booster Gold has maintained a relative profile in the DC Universe ever since, when other characters have not. Where I mean, characters like Vixen or Black Lightning really haven't had the kind of profile that Booster had. And part of that is because Booster had his own comic. There's an unfortunate trend uh, in comics readership that people don't want to read an anthology title they want to read a specific creator, a specific well, that's character. that's true. And the anthology titles tend to suffer because of it. Marvel did Astonishing Tales this year. Last year it was Marvel Comics Presents. DC's closest thing to an anthology was probably Trinity mm-hmm. in that it had a lot of different rotating characters in that, you know, that second feature. Right. But most importantly, it can't be used as – as a replacement for, you know, a, a miniseries or launching another book, you know. Oh, but what if the, what if they're just testing out it? Let's say that no one has ever heard of uh, Skip Skylark, the uh, dirt-busting crime fighter of uh, 1928 Oklahoma. And they're mm-hmm. like, okay, well, let's try this guy out and let's see what happens if we put him in the backup of Detective Comics. And we try him out for like five or six issues. And if he's good enough, then we'll come out with the uh, with the whatever his name is, Skip Skylark, uh, number one, number one. Skip Nothing Skylark wrong with that. And the problem that you have though sauntering is shadow. If I'm buying <laughs> Batman with a Skip Skylark backup, right? Why am I buying a book, Batman? What's the portion of the story that appeals to me that I know appeals to me, Batman? Am I going to try that second feature? Am I even going to get to the point where I look at that second feature? I don't know. I don't you read everything cover to cover? Yes and no, but I'm not the average reader. Yeah, I mean, not everybody does. Here's the yeah. here's the example that I have. This last week, Image Comics, Chew Number One, right? An esoteric story, an outre premise, something really bizarre going on. Nobody thought it was going to be a huge bonker hit, but it is, right? 
if they had and if you look at they actually did a little preview of it in the back of the walking dead mm-hmm. and instead of you know getting a bump from the walking dead the walking dead is now getting a price bump from chew yeah I think, you know, the backup feature has its place, but I don't think that the backup feature is primarily well, where you need to be I'm not launching saying, with concepts. I'm not saying that that's the only point of the backup feature. I'm just saying that that could be a place where they could test something out. I think the backups are great because it does give readers a chance to read the adventures of Jaime Reyes, who we wouldn't be able to read if it hadn't been for being a backup in Booster Gold. Well, they could have not canceled his title. Well, there's that there's that factor too, but that's been decided a long time ago. Yet Jonah that Hex train has is, sailed. Yet Jonah Hex is still on the stands. Jonah Hex has a movie coming out, and Jonah Hex is written by you know the editor in chief's buddy pal. Well, uh, Blue Beetle shows up on Batman: Brave and the Bold more often than uh, Josh Hex. Brolin. Josh Brolin pictures show up on the internet. Yeah. So, uh, Jonah Hex has been on Batman the Brave and the Bold about as much as Blue Beetle, uh, hasn't he? Twice, I think. Only twice. I thought it was three appearances for I don't Jonah. know. But, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the point is, I mean, here's a title. Jonah Hex is selling a lot fewer titles than Blue Beetle. You can't, you can't really compare, canceled. like, Blue Beetle appearing on no, Brave and the really Bold can't. to the movie, seeing as how the movie has Megan Fox in it. Right, right, right. True. All right, so uh, that's how I come up with my three and three-quarter slices of meatloaf. Or you could just Buzzing say, there. yeah, well, extra. Uh, a little bit extra, just like there's <laughs> a, a little bit feature. extra in the, in the, uh, <laughs> they're on the side of vegetables. There you go. Nice. Uh, so, uh, let's go ahead and jump forward almost a month, Rodrigo, and Into you are the future. Hello, an advanced future review people. advanced review of something from Boom Studios. Boom Studios. I have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, okay. I read Swordsmith Assassin. Not to be confused with Gunsmith Cats <laughs> or Ladysmith Black Mombazo. <laughs> or uh, Iris uh, Assassin, the one that came out from Right, I- Iris Secretarial Assassin yes, or what whatever. Is, yes. <laughs> Admi- I prefer the term Administrative Assassin. <laughs> or so Concubine. Swordsmith Assassin. Swordsmith Assassin. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty cool that uh, it's... It's got a real sam- samurai vibe to it, and perhaps more importantly, a samurai vibe to it. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, now, is it set in current times? Ancient no, it's times? it's set it's set in uh, feudal partially Japan? in 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 feudal Japan. Basically, the the, the book starts, <laughs> and you see some guys fighting some Prussians. Yeah. Um, during World War One, I, I guess probably that's when Prussians were big, right? Yeah. Um, and they're like. <laughs> Captain, somebody has gotten through our lines. And he's like, is it a Prussian? They're like, no, sir, it is not a Prussian. Oh, good, because we hate Prussians. It's like, it it appears to be a Japanese man. He's like, awesome, let's talk to him. (laughs) So the Japanese guy shows up, and he's like, I am looking for your sword, Commander Man. And the commander's like, well, you should, because it's an awesome sword made by a cool guy whose name I've forgotten. So we'll call him... Mr. uh, X. Mr. X. Swordsmith. This is a swordsmith sword. It's like... And you cannot have it. And he's like, I do not want it, but I need to talk to you about it. So he's like, all right. Is it cursed? It is not cursed. Okay. So they walk into his little tent pavilion thing. And he's like, I will tell you my story. So he starts into his story. And it turns out that this mysterious Japanese man is the swordsmith. Oh. Dun, 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 some like hundred years later or something. No, not quite. Oh, okay. Maybe like five years, years later. Oh, later. five years later. Okay. So... You find out that as a kid, he learned to 
smith swords uh, from his dad. <laughs> and him and his dad would smith swords all over the place. So we're like, hey, can I have a sword? He's like, I will smith one for you. But they would only smith swords for guys who's uh, who had honor. Ah, okay. Only straight up samurai could have awesome swordsmith swords. How many swords could a swordsmith sword if a swordsmith could smith swords? Um, apparently, apparently about a dozen. Yeah, only for the good guys. Um, only for the good guys. So, you know, the kid grows up and he's like, man, screw this good guy jazz. I want to be an awesome swordsmith who makes lots of money. There's this girl I really like. Um, I want to give her a good life. So I'm just going to start selling my awesome incomparable swords that I've smithed. Oh, he became a sellout swordsmith assassin. He he, he did. He, well, he wasn't an assassin yet. At this point, he was swordsmith sellout. Okay. Swordsmith sellout. Um, so he goes off and makes a lot of swords. Then the head of the of the current ruling dynasty is like, hey, cool swordsmith guy, come make me a sword. So he makes an awesome sword for the emperor and takes the sword to him. Has this awesome time. He's so happy that he's decided to essentially sell out. Um, you know, things are going great. Goes back home and his wife and child had been murdered. Oh, no. Murdered. No. So sword? Down. By a sword. He tracks down the murderer. Oh, man, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. Oh, man. You are correct. Oh, my goodness. So he tracks down the assassin and he's like, I kind of recognize this assassin or or, or the murderer. He's like, I kind of recognize this guy, but I will fight him. And as it turns out, he's not that good of a fighter with a sword. He just makes them really well. Mm -hmm. So this other guy schools him um, and he's like, aha, you cannot defeat me for I have an awesome sword made by... You. You, the dun, swordsmith. Dun, dun. You. It is you who killed your family. Oh, my goodness. So the swordsmith manages to kill the guy, and he takes the sword that he made, and he chucks it into the sea. Mm-hmm. And he says, from here on out, I will find every evil sword I made and chuck it into the sea. Ah, cool. So it is kind of like samurai, it is. Afro samurai. It is. It's 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 very much that that kind of old school slow paced but but very kind of methodical samurai feature if you've seen yojimbo yeah um it's kind of the kind of thing he does is like he goes in he ha- he makes like a little mission for himself he goes in and he achieves it and like slowly he starts liberating this town mm-hmm. you know kind of by outsmarting and 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 outfighting oh, the other cool. guys um so as a first issue th- this one's really great it it, it absolutely 100% sets up the the series for you you know that from here on out he's gonna be chasing down his swords and right. chucking them into the sea wherever cool. he can um mostly by fighting off the guys who have them because he's going after the bad guys right um it sets up a lot of questions that are interesting you know he's re- he's sitting next he's telling this general about it mm-hmm. is he going to try to kill the general to take his sword back yeah is this general a good person does he deserve his sword mm-hmm. you know things like that and and he's in Europe now so. He's probably going to continue telling the story of how he got all the way to Europe. Yeah. Um, so it, it really sets itself up as in a really good way. I would I would definitely give this. Um, well, as far as the art, the art I'm not too crazy about. Um, okay. It is not bad, but for a book that um, needs to have that sudden. I mean, as as far as the like. The quiet moments when they're when people are staring each other down, it's real good. Mm-hmm. But for a book that needs that sudden slash, the sudden slash art is kind of confusing. Mm. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't quite achieve what I think what what I think the artist set out to achieve in okay. a lot of places. So that 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 knocks it down a little bit. Um, the tone of the art is good. Okay. Um, so I would give it 
I would definitely give it three and a half slices of meatloaf. Excellent. Um, and and it definitely definitely has potential to get well into the four and a half. Oh really? Oh yeah. I mean this this series. I'm real interested to see what happens in this series. Well, listeners, if you want to get in on this series as well, rush over to your local comic book shop and order. Swordsmith Assassin, you can do it up until June 29th. You got time. So there's plenty of time to get over there and tell your local comic shop guy, hey, I want to buy Swordsmith Assassin, and let's make this another sell-out issue from Boom Studios, written by Andrew Cosby, the uh, one of the creators of Eureka, and Michael Allen Nelson, who has been doing the Hexed series, which was really good. Mm-hmm. And Wasn't he, he one of the guys on Match Game? No, that was somebody else. That's <laughs> Charles, Charles Nelson Riley. Is who you're thinking of? Michael Allen Nelson. Full Nelson. He also is the one behind the uh, a lot of the Fall of Cthulhu stories. Mm. So that's uh, where. What about the right. Winter of Cthulhu? No, sorry, not him. Okay. Springtime in this. Uh, <laughs> Spring, springtime. springtime in Ryla for Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> See now, Rodrigo is starting to catch on how we play this game. And now that we're done with reviews, if you want to read more reviews, head over to the Majorspoilers.com website. And following reviews comes everyone's favorite portion of the show. The Major Spoilers Poll of the Week, 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 Say week, what? week, 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 Say the week. Say what? For the dozens in attendance and the other dozen listening at home. Hi, Mom. It's Hi, time. Uncle Bill. This week we're bringing it to Robot versus Robot Action, where you decide the which fate has n- Which we've never done before. <laughs> This week, Stephen has decided to once again be a bastard now, by this asking is, uh, us to this choose. Is, hey, hey! I should point out this is actually a Scroll Brian suggestion. Mm-hmm. Well, Scroll Brian is a scroll, so I still blame you. Okay, but he this week he's me. asking me again to choose between my children, bringing back two beloved wags, the robots from Mystery Science Theater three thousand, Tom Servo, who of course is. Uh, I believe a gumball machine with a bubble on top. Well, no, he's a gumball machine on top of a uh, monkey bank or something, monkey piggy bank. With a bubble on top. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Crow, who is apparently a couple of paper plates and a bowling ball with a, a uh, highline net. Uh, that would it, be a lacrosse mask. Same thing. Highline lacrosse. Uh, it's sports. What do I know from sports? I'm a geek. <laughs> But if you had to choose between Crow and Servo, who, faithful spoilerites, who would you save from a burning building? Steven. I would have to go with uh, Crow T. Robot for this one simple reason. Tom Servo may seem like the straight guy, but there are times in MST3K where he just kind of tweaked out just a little bit to where mm-hmm. he could flip and turn on you and stab you in the middle of the night with a knife. <laughs> so I would rather go with the crazy that I know than the crazy that I don't know. So I would have to save Crow T. Robot from that burning building and uh, just get on with his wackiness. Rodrigo? Um, I, I'd actually go with, with Tom Servo. I like... I, his sense of humor is so much more dry. dry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and he, most of his jokes come very matter-of-factly, so I, I appreciate that. I like, I like the way that he's... Vo- I like his voice, because <laughs> he's real. <laughs> <laughs> Is I guess what I meant to say. Um, what I would like to, to to have us do after this at some point is to 
have then like a two on two fight, like have these two versus like R two D two and C three. Oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, that's next or week's against uh, Robbie and Robot B nine. Yeah, there we go. all right. We'll the see how it plays out. It's all going somewhere, folks. Don't worry. It's all. We don't know where, somewhere. but it's, it's really. We'll tell not. you when we get there. I can't yeah, know. Right? <laughs> Lately, we we missed March already. So, all right. So you're going with uh, you're going with Tom Servo. I am. I'm going with Crow T Robot. Actually, can I change my my that vote means to Gypsy? It comes to me to break the tie. <laughs> the uh, baby now, sea carrier <laughs> and a flashlight. As a, as always, my answer is going to be coming in three parts. Oh, good lord! There's only two. There's only two choices. How could there be three parts? Shut up. And, My and, uh, and, choice is and based Steven's on, toilet on three is broken, factors. so I can't leave to <laughs> go to the first bathroom. factor is the fact really that fun. yes, Crow is entertaining, but as Rodrigo said, Tom's got that drier wit, and Tom will say things. It was Tom who did the whole ode to Creepy Girl, which I think is one of the most yes. memorable pieces in yes. MST3K history. Oh my Creepy Girl! Yes. And secondly, I don't know if you remember when uh, I don't. I it may have been a Mike episode where they were given the chance to redesign their bodies. Oh, and and uh, Tom, Tom came up with these slim. endless series, and one of them was Ron Selwall, a tiny, a tiny bunch of nanobots that would inject themselves into other things and turn them into more Tom servos. <laughs> <laughs> and third, and most importantly, and here's the defining factor. I don't know if you've seen Mystery Science Theater, the movie. Yes. This Island Earth. Yes. Where the main character talks like this. And he comes in, the main character says something to the effect of, well, I have dual doctorates and this and that. And Tom Servo, deadpan, says, well, whoopty shit. <laughs> that right there, is, that's the, defining fa- the, dis- the deciding factor for me, is Servo had a, just the whoopty shit sells it for me. Now, Unfortunately, it looks like I may be in the minority right now. 194 votes in at Majorspoilers.com. Go check it out and vote, faith, vote Faithful Spoiler Rights if you wish to you know, uh, correct this egregious wrong. 45% of the votes saying Crow T. Robot is superior. 39% of the votes saying Tom's Servo is superior. So that's relatively close. 16% of the votes saying, I am a useless Philistine. <laughs> I, am a, I am a worthless and sack hammer. I uh, am a bag. waste of skin who does not know what You're the awesomeness practically Weblint. All right. If people want to see, um, boy, there's plenty of MST3 episodes out there, but I'm, I'm particularly fond of Mitchell. Mitchell. Yeah, Mitchell. Puma Man. Yeah. The and shorts aren't the legend, bad either. The Legend of Boggy Creek. And the attack of the the eye creatures. If if you can actually get a hold of the shorts, yeah. I, I'd really recommend that because that'll give you a nice short dose of, <laughs> of Mystery Science Theater so you can decide if you actually don't like it. You can bail out early. We may have to do a, an episode where we just talk about MST3K. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, I've been trying to get a hold of Joel for a longest time. And at one point he was like, oh, man, I want to thank you for helping him out at one point. He said, I'll, I'll certainly come on your show. But the guy's been too busy with their Starship Titanic thing right now. So, mm. Well, and you know, everybody has their lives. I know, know but geez, 10 minutes with us would do us wonders. Would pep, <laughs> us, would pep us up. Pep us up, yo. All right. So go to Majorspoilers.com. You can vote. You cannot vote. You can continue voting. Whatever happens, don't get distracted by the Power Girl bar on the right. It's just an advertisement. Well, click it. Read it. Yes, do click it. But then come back for the awesomeness. Do click on the ads, please, everybody, because right below the Power Girl ad is an ad for um, Least I Could Do, which also features boobies. Breasts. Yes, breasts and boobies. So if anything, uh, we've got some boobies on the site for you to look at. 
What's funny about boobies? I'm just saying, way to way to go for the lowest common denominator there, pal. Uh, go to major spoilers. We got boobies. It's going to be our new and slogan. Lots of Instead them. of major spoilers, we know you love comics. We do too. It's major spoilers. We got boobies. Sure, boobies. Well, we should do what like T-shirt hell does, and we should ask our our viewers, our faithful spoilerites, to send their sexiest picture of themselves in their major spoilers T-shirt. Uh, we've got a couple um, of those already, and and for people that were. Winners of the uh, Major Spoilers 100th episode extravaganza, they actually got some Major Spoilers masks nice. in the Ooh. mail as well. For those of you that have seen our little uh, red and blue mascot guy, got a little blue mask to go along with that. So it always plays. It always pays to play the Major Spoilers uh, game experience. Hey, let's Major talk about Spoilers experience now. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's a MST3K reference for you. Which we've been milking the crap out of. <laughs> I'm surprised we let's, haven't gotten a cease and desist. Maybe, maybe let's not get a hold of them. <laughs> maybe we keep maybe we uh, making Joel this joke Joel. and uh, he don't know, okay? Like a McDLT, the hot side Joel and the cool side major spoilers. There's an interesting thing that I think happens in all all media, film, radio, music. Everything good turns to crap. Eventually. Uh, but in the case of, of Tintin, Tintin is a phenomenal success throughout the rest of the world, particularly in Europe, but relatively unknown here in the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I fell in love with uh, Asterisk or Asterix uh, when I was young. And that Obelix. was my kind of an Obelix. Yeah, that was my first introduction to uh, European comics. Mm-hmm. And I love the crap out of that thing. When I was about 12, 14, somewhere around there, must have been 14, I was in a comic book shop in Kansas City, and they had this uh, Tintin thing, and it was Cigars of the Pharaohs. And I kind of picked it up and flipped through, and I was like, oh, man, this is, this is pretty neat. Uh, it looks like a cool story. But crap, it was 12 bucks for a comic, and there was no way I was going to spend 12 bucks on a comic book when I could have bought 12 comics for 12 bucks at mm. that time. So it went back on the shelves, and throughout time, people have talked about Tintin, and people have mentioned uh, the festival that goes on in, I forget where it's at, uh, somewhere outside of France or Belgium or something. Uh, Luxembelgium? Maybe it's in Luxembelgenburg. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I thought maybe this week we would, pick up, we would pick up Tintin and kind of give it a, a, a look over, move outside of our realm of our comfort zone of fighty-fighty and stabby-stabby superheroes, mm-hmm. and get into the espionage and world travels of a boy and his dog. And the fighty-fighty and stabby-stabby <laughs> Belgian people. Especially in this one, Cigars of the Pharaoh. Holy crap, there's kidnapping. There's, there's heroin. There's drug uh, gun, gun running. Yep. I mean, this has got everything a, a young man uh, should like. Um, now, I guess I should start off and ask... Rodrigo, not being from the U.S., mm-hmm. United States of America, um, being from Mexico, were you familiar with Tintin before you before you immigrated? Yeah, I was actually. There was there, you could find a lot of Tintin in Mexico. I personally was never into Tintin mm-hmm. because of its its severe deficiencies in dinosaurs and robots. <laughs> um, so. You know, given the choice between a, you know, Transformers or Spider-Man or some other comic book and a Tintin comic, I would usually go for uh, something that was a little flashier. My grandma had some Tintin comics, Mm -hmm. though, so I I actually did manage to flip through some of those. 
I, I also grew up in the equivalent of a foreign country. I grew up in Kansas in the seventies, <laughs> right? Which is an awful lot like you know being from Iceland. And I actually had interactions with Tintin before I even knew what comics were. Right. Because I, I didn't start reading comics until I was almost 12 or 13 when my uncle told me that I was too old for them. Mm-hmm. But I remember going to – my grandfather would go to the same barber shop and get his hair cut like every week because he had really short – he was bald. But he would go and hang out with his friends and drink coffee and smoke you know, these terrible cigarillos and – I would sit and read and they always seemed to have – I can't remember if it was like Reader's Digest or it was something, but it had serialized Tintin adventures in it. Right. Just a couple, three pages at a time. Well, and that's kind of originally how they appeared, which might be – you know, uh, if if you read the Tintin stories, they're kind of divided into like uh, four rows of like three panels each. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking when these appeared in – in the newspaper originally, that they were the six panels at a time kind of story. Yeah. So you were probably getting it in a serialized form very much, or as close to as it was originally released as possible. Mm-hmm. And that that explains a lot about kind of the, the pacing of the stories and, and the way the stories are set up, because um, if, if you look at a, at a page, like just kind of a random page out of this story, is like on the top left panel... Tintin runs afoul of some guy. By the middle panel, he ha- he is in captivity, and right. by the bottom right panel, he has somehow managed to escape it. Yeah, yeah. And this yeah. happens like seventeen times in this story. Right. But it it, it feels like um, I don't know if you guys ever. I never saw them in the movie theaters, but I used to uh, go to the library and rent like Republic movie serials, The Adventures yeah. of Captain Marvel. And, yeah. You remember you know, uh, G eight and his battle aces. Right. Right. And it seems like this this is very much paced like that, you know. You, you introduce, you have a setting, you have a problem, you have a cliffhanger, then you have a resolution, then another problem, then a cliffhanger, then a resolution. And, you know, every six or eight pages, you get something entirely new. And it, it, it's really interesting. And it, it's almost like, um, I don't know if you guys ever watched the old Popeye cartoons. It reminds me of that, yeah. too, in that well, mm-hmm. the pacing feels different not archaic necessarily but it feels different from everything that i read you know it feels like a very serialized fiction and there there are references to certain either pop culture or bits of of you know referential things that i just don't get right that makes it feel esoteric and it makes it feel exotic rather than going i don't know what the heck this is all all about why is his hair so pointy right you know well it's it's funny that you mentioned um popeye because did you ever or have you ever picked up the popeye newspaper strip stories thimble theater it's one of the few comic strips that i really enjoyed they're being collected uh, now in this big oversized version and i remember collected once before because the the library in beloit kansas had a big book of them yeah and i i had uh, a couple smaller books of these probably later like 40 50 popeye stories but you're right it kind of followed the same thing where because of the serialized nature of popeye i equated that very much to these tintin stories and rodrigo you had mentioned that tintin that your grandmother had tintin comics well you know, this story first appeared in, I want to say, 1932. It ran from 1932 to 1934 mm-hmm. when it was originally serialized black and white in the newspapers. In French, okay, in Belgium. Je in... flippe du flap de Boeing Feuillen, huh? Yes. <laughs> uh, Je m'appelle Monsieur Beuf La Tête. 
And it wasn't until the 1950s when the strips were, number one, translated to English for the first time in, in, in uh, London. Mm-hmm. And they also got colorized as well during that time. So there are some differences between the original 1933 story and the colored one, the colored version that we're reading now and the ones that are collected. I actually, because I know Tintin is so popular, I went out and bought the seven-volume set from uh, Little Brown Books mm-hmm. uh, that features all of the all of the Tintin stories except for the very controversial Tintin in the Congo, mm. which uh, a lot of people say is very racist and has some implications for racism in there. Um, and that's and that's something to to talk about. Tintin uh, comes from simpler times, right? When you didn't need to actually know crap about other countries to write about them, right? Um, you at, just made it up as you went along. At some point, we should actually like read through Tintin in America because I've every once in a while I've encountered people who have read Tintin, and and a lot of the time they don't quite understand just how outlandish things like I remember seeing this thing about Tintin in Mexico and right. it made no sense. It was crazy. I mean, I was living in Mexico and I was reading about this <laughs> and I was like, this is not what this Mexico is like. Right. Um, well, I, and I so, don't, I'm you trying know, to see if there's a Mexico. It's like what year that one. May you, have. you live in the United States, right? So there's all these cowboys and Indians trying to kill you all the time, right? <laughs> yes. that's, that's what it's like. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Tintin in America because, you know, that's what we're going to count as the first story, or at least in this collection. Mm-hmm. Um, Cigar of the Pharaohs would be, essentially, it's the fourth story released. Um, Tintin in the Land of the Soviets, number one. Tintin in the Congo, number two. Tintin in America, three. Cigar of the Pharaohs, um, number four. It wasn't until after the fourth series was done, after the uh, cigar story was done, that Herge, or however you pronounce his name, Herge, that he actually started doing research into mm-hmm. the locations that he was talking about. Because here's this story that Tintin's on a cruise in the Mediterranean and suddenly he's, boom, right in the middle of the Suez Canal or halfway to India or whatever mm-hmm. very quickly. And there are times where it's like, how did, uh, how did this work? Did you actually do some research into... Oh, yeah. Into how these things, uh, how and, these things ran, and, and, and a lot of it, a lot of it, you can just chuck to, you know, it's it's fantasy. It's right. It's a book for kids. It doesn't matter how he got to India. If you you know, we watched Up, right? And Up, which is a movie that was done yesterday, right? They talk of, you know, it's like the guy passes out, yeah. and then they wake up over South America, a trip that should on a plane that is actually propelled by, hours. you know, yeah. Well, it's interesting to note that then in the Blue Lotus, the story that comes right after mm-hmm. the cigar story, um, he actually did collaborate with, I think, um, someone from China or someone from Japan to make sure that some of the facts and some of the misconceptions <laughs> and some of the racism about beliefs of the Asian people were kind of toned down in that story. Um so that's kind of I, I guess we're kind of dancing around the entire this entire story of Cigar of the Pharaohs or well, Cigars of the Pharaoh. Cigars of the Pharaoh. And I, I read that title and it just seems so outlandish and weird. It's like, you know, it's just like random things. It, 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 it's like the foot bath of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> the commode makes, of the gods. Exactly. But it makes perfect sense once you get into it. Right. Um, 
I love the open. I love the fact that the opening is just kind of Tintin standing there, and then all of a sudden, blam, the plot is fired out of a cannon. Crazy man running by trying to save someone's life or his his map, I'm not sure. And then Tintin's like, oh, holy crap, it's an adventure. I better run it along. Right. I, I just – I love the fact that he gets involved simply because he gets involved. Yeah. There's no there's no big, you know, this is, you know, here's his motivation and this, this is why he's doing – no. Something fun happens or interesting. In this case, Tintin is trying to help what seems like a, a nice man. And he gets wrapped up in this thing that just keeps rolling downhill like a snowball. Dr. Sarcophagus. Perfect Dr. Name. Sarcophagus, who is nuts, by the way. The names yeah. are awesome. Oh, yeah. The names just go all over the place. What's interesting is, and I don't know if this is the first appearance of Thompson and Thompson mm-hmm. in this story, uh, but it goes from Tintin's just enjoying uh, a cruise, and we see this little map of, of how this adventure is going to play out. Maps weren't added until the 1955 story. Mm-hmm. Um. But, you know, he meets this guy, saves the the papyrus map that's supposed to lead to the pharaoh of Kiosk. Uh, and suddenly Tintin goes back to his room after running into a, a movie producer. And Thompson and Thompson are there and saying, hey, we're arresting you for drug smuggling. And I'm like, OK, some drug whatever that they're arresting him for. It's not like a little bit of weed or uh, maybe like some medicine. It's like, of heroin. Not just five heroin. Black tar heroin. heroin. <laughs> And, so, <laughs> and, you know, you look at that and I'm like, wait a minute, this is the 1930s. And you realize, you know, heroin didn't start yesterday, kids. <laughs> well, that and heroin, they, they probably didn't realize even at that time how bad heroin was. So right. It, it's like, yeah, he's because you see Tintin and he's like, huh, I've been arrested for drug smuggling. That yeah. sucks. He's not like, oh, God, they're going to execute me or you know anything yeah. like that. And then it. The thing that really cracks me up is they lock him in his little room, so he just climbs out a porthole, jumps in a nearby boat, and gets away. And this is, yeah, and this is what's uh, amazing is he hooks back up with Dr. Sarcophagus, and this is supposed to be, you know, you think cigars of the pharaoh, you're going to think, ooh, this is going to be a big, let's find it in the Egypt story. By page eight, by page eight, they have not only uncovered the tomb, they have gone inside They've found. They've solved the mystery of the missing archaeologists. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tintin finds these cigars, and then he passes out and finds himself floating in a sarcophagus in the middle of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. This kid really needs to work on his conditioning, because this is like the first time he passes out. But there's six or eight times during this story where they're like, "Hey, let's get him somewhere. Have him pass out." <laughs> there is something actually makes you wonder if that heroin wasn't really his. <laughs> Well, it turns out, you know, by the end of the story, we discover that uh, those cigars are really drug smugglers were shipping heroin mm-hmm. uh, that way. But in the meantime, uh, there were all these other things that go on in his adventures. And I just you mentioned that he keeps passing out. And I wanted yeah. to find this bit from Salieri, who uh, posted up on the Major Spoilers uh, website. Um, let me find it really quick where he's talking about some scientists Let's see, uh, a New Scientist magazine Christmas special a few years ago, the detailed findings of two scientists, uh, ages six and five, were published. They concluded that Tintin never seems to visibly age or seek any romantic interests due to a lack of hormone production caused by a weak uh, hypothalamus brought on by the fact that he keeps banging his head, getting knocked out every every adventure. (laughs) Multiple times in one adventure. Yes. 
That's another nod to me to the old serials because he's in this terrible danger. He's surrounded by sharks in the sea and he's going to die horribly and a big tidal wave. And then we cut to he wakes up in the hold of a ship. Oh, we saved you. Wait, you did what? Yes. And it's just this. He hooks but up it, with this. Yeah, it's just I but think there, that's there's, the problem. there's such a, a there's such a fun vibe going on that you don't you, you let it go. You're like, oh, he, you know, uh, the, the brown hornet mysteriously escaped unharmed. Let's move on to the next portion of the story. Even if they did the three or four panels, if this were in the newspaper and they just did the three or four panels like the strip like we're familiar with today. Mm -hmm. You know, I can see this one where you have this uh, what looks to be a take of the uh, the Japanese tidal wave famous painting that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, You could see that being the Friday cliffhanger for the week. And then Monday you come back, you're eager to read the newspaper and Tintin wakes up in a boat and he's on there with some guy who can sell you know, ice to Eskimos. He's on a boat. And then that leads to, you know, be careful because Tintin might wake up in Kathy Bates's house and she may be cutting (laughs) off his feet because he's, he, you know, messed up that particular cliffhanger. I like the fact that as soon as they arrive on the Arabian coast, we see not one, but two different depictions that are probably considerably racially insensitive. Right. But since it's 1933, we just kind of slide right past it. Well, you know, the first time I saw, I saw these, these creatures, <laughs> I, I didn't know what they were. I, I didn't know that they were supposed to be black people. Oh, okay. Like, I was like, what are those things? <laughs> They're all like rubbery and shiny and they got like perfectly round mouth. They got like tubes. Or, oh, holy crap. <laughs> oh, no. The oily people. Oh, now, no. now you know why Tintin in the Congo oh, is, God, yes. it's has been really banned. In so it's got to be awful. Well, it's it's no less offensive than you know. Immediately we see the the Arabs in their little burnooses and you know superstitious characters freaking out and, and shrinking at people. But it's interesting to me that these these depictions are there because at the time, right? I think they were a kind of comic shorthand, and you move on. But it's not even important to the plot. It's just one of those things where you look at that and go, wow, today that would be completely unacceptable. And well, now he's on a hike in the mountains. Cause, right. Because today even things that approach it are completely unacceptable. There was that yeah. whole uh, thing about that one Pokemon that kind of looked like one of those depictions of like old school depictions of black people. So they had to go in and change it up so that its skin was purple instead of black. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Look it up. It's the yeah. it's the Jinx controversy. Okay, I believe it was like Rastaman or something. I don't yes. remember. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that for... was totally inappropriate, and I apologize. Tintin goes for a ride in the mountains, runs into that director again, interrupts his uh, his thing. He heads back to the boat, finds out that the boat is there full of gun smugglers. Gun smuggling. And here's the point where the art really starts to remind me of Sergio Aragones. I don't know if Sergio has read. Um, any Tintin, but I would I would say that if you look at the sequence with the uh, with the director, yeah. you can totally look at any dozen issues of Gru and oh, go, yeah, okay, yeah. well, there's a definite hair gay influence there, right, mm-hmm. right. Uh, back on the boat, uh, Tintin or Snowy, I forget which, drops a <laughs> grenade, and Thompson and Thompson flee, thinking that it's going to blow the whole boat up. <laughs> Little do they know, and thankfully Tintin explains it that. Uh, when they ship grenades, they don't uh, put the, uh, the the fuses or the igniters or whatever in them, mm-hmm, right. so the they're explosive. not going to blow up anyway. This does bring up the Brian Griffin question. Hey, Lois. 
Can no, you hear? Oh, uh, we know Tintin talks to Snowy, and Snowy talks to Tintin. No, but, but there's never a moment where we explicitly see Tintin reply. I to like Snowy to think this, so that Snowy can talk, and everyone just ignores him. That could be it. Uh, I think the way, and if I remember reading up on this, I was doing some research on this. Snowy uh, talks, but he's talking to the reader. Mm. Uh, Tintin, all everybody else hear him woof woofing. Or woeing. Woeing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So that's an annoying dog. So it's almost like Tintin is just, you know, having a conversation with a dog that's not talking back to him, yet we see the dog talk. And that Mm. was something that always tripped me out for a long time was even when I was aware of Tintin before and was reading some of the stories was, is this really a talking dog? How does that... It never bothered me from the whole, is this a talking dog perspective? Because I read it, you know from the point where I had only read a few comics, it bothered me that it seemed inconsistent that right. people didn't respond to Snowy or not respond to Snowy or that, you know, other animals weren't talking. It was, it was, you know, relatively kind of, I won't say realistic, but you know, a, a more of a down to earth portrayal of some pretty crazy stuff happening to this poor kid. And then the dog talks and it just doesn't seem to fit with the genre. Yeah. Somehow, from this adventure on the boat, Tintin winds up in the desert in Arabia and ends up in uh, Mecca, originally is how it was supposed to be, but they changed that later on to just an unnamed Arab city. Mm-hmm. And he ends up getting enlisted in this man's army, where he also finds the <laughs> cigar bands uh, from from the pharaoh with the same symbol on it. So, right. at some point, you because, know, this kid is tripping through this whole Thompson story. Thompson and Thompson inadvertently start a war. <laughs> yeah, they do. Right. And then gets set against, and Tintin is set up for execution. I love the fact that, oh no, not only am I a heroin dealer and, and, and an arms dealer, I'm apparently an, an alien spy. So this is like the third time in the story that this kid is going to be killed or locked up. It's awesome. Tintin is one person that you don't want to mess with. No. Right? He's all into the bad stuff. Turns out that uh, Thompson and Thompson want to bring Tintin in alive, so they fake his uh, execution his uh, shotgun execution. Sort of uh, a fake execution. And they bury him alive, or somebody buries him alive in a ventilated grave. He's pulled out, uh, but makes an escape via plane and crashes in the jungles of India. In the jungles of India. <laughs> this is like Indiana Jones before Indiana Jones ever came about. I mean, this guy. Well, I mean, this, this was that age. This is actually protopulp. Yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, it's around the same time, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he's I still, just world-traveling. I love the the little moments of slapstick where he's sitting there and he lands and he gets hit on the head with a first aid kit. Yes. Yep. All I need is a book of instructions, and then the book of instructions <laughs> hits him on the head. And once again, his hypothalamus <laughs> exactly. is ruined. That explains why his hair stands straight I'm up, too. I'm 30 I always old. thought it was a bump on his head. And then he befriends a happy elephant. By just fashioning a horn. I think I have learned to speak elephant. <laughs> How about you learn to speak dog so you can communicate with your freaking dog who keeps he trying to warn you about a that. a dose of quinine. That's the thing that cracks me up. He gives the elephant some cheap antibiotics and then all of a sudden the elephant is his new best friend. It just, it's truly fun. There's no explanation behind it. You just move on, and then they run into Professor Sarcophagus and again, again. This all happens. I mean, we're talking about this. This happens in eight panels. Yes, like every like 
every interaction that happens happens within one page. Yes. It's like within one page, he meets this elephant. At the end of the page, he is riding the elephant into town after one whole adventure involving the elephant. So, so far... And by the next page, the elephant is gone. Yes. So far, he has been to the Mediterranean. He's been to Egypt. He's been accused of drug smuggling. He has uncovered a tomb. He uh, has been kidnapped. He's become a drug or a gun runner. Mm-hmm. He's become a member of some uh, of an army. An army. He's mm-hmm. executed, brought back to life, all in the span of we are less than forty pages into this story. Yeah, it just flies, and it's it it should be outlandish, and you should be going, oh god, not now. But it's fun. It is. Yeah, it's enjoyable, and it gets even more fun when uh, <laughs> when uh, I forget who is is plotting against Tintin. But they lock him up in an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, a- again, it's those naming conventions where we meet, you know, Reverend Peacock and Mr. Zelotti. I love the name Zelotti. I don't know why. Zelotti. Zelotti, hello. And then uh, he gets him locked up in an insane asylum by giving him a letter that says, lock him in the <laughs> insane asylum. He's going to tell you he's perfectly sane. Right. That's just like the best logic ever. And, of course, he escapes by jumping on the stomach of a fat man, which bounces him over the wall naturally. Now, here's, oh, here's the thing. Almost every ridiculous thing that happens in this book, I was okay with. I was like, <laughs> okay, so he learns to talk elephant. So he gives the elephant something, and the elephant is now his friend. There's hypnotism. There's all this crazy right. stuff that couldn't otherwise happen. He survives for three days without food or water in a sarcophagus. The jumping on the fat man really bothered me because that here's here's the thing I have never never attempted to communicate with an elephant so I could imagine that perhaps in some way that is possible. But you have, I have tried to jump on a fat I have man's stomach. Ju- I have plenty of uncles who are fat, and when I was a kid, I jumped on their stomach and I did not bounce eight feet well, in the air. What they didn't show you was that man dying of peritonitis four panels later <laughs> from the the injured stomach, and, and, and you do see him go like, "Oh, my stomach," but, you know. Uh, <laughs> See, that didn't bother me nearly as much as him leaping on a moving train. See, that so seems unlikely a, to me. There's a lot of suspension of disbelief oh, that has yeah. to go on. Especially when Tintin... Suspension bridges of disbelief. When suddenly Tintin finds himself into a mysterious cult of purple Ku Klux Klan members all wearing the symbol of the uh, pharaoh Pharaohs. Dun-dun-dun. Kiosk, by the way. Good yes, joke. Yes. And, I had to say it out loud before it made sense to me. You know, Tintin knocks them all out with a with a bat because he's the first one that gets called back into the secret they, room of unrevealing. Did anybody else look at those guys and think of the phantom blot from the yes, old Mickey Mouse stories? I did. Yes, I did. But then again, you have to think of the time period. Some of us may not. Some people... Especially some of our listeners may not know who the Phantom Blot is. Nope. The Phantom Blot looks like these guys in purple. Yep. But then, uh, so there's some context for you, kids. They remind me of some of the uh, enemies in Earthbound. Which okay, is so now he's lost me. Yes. Reference. But yeah, the you young win. kids are back with us. You win. Uh, somehow Tintin convinces Thompson and Thompson that uh, the drug smuggling is going on. and They steal thing. the car from Monopoly. They they end up in the uh, what's his name the uh, the Maharaja the, Rahaja, the Maharaja who says hey hang out with us the end. I really wonder if the Monopoly wasn't based on this because there's a train there's a and car. Tintin is literally driving, driving the car, car from yeah. Monopoly. Yep. There's a little dog. Yep. 
There's a, there's a character who has the top, top hat. hat. Yep. There's a giant thimble. Tintin wears shoes. <laughs> yep. That's all I'm saying. Yep. I'm sure there's a thimble in there somewhere. There's there's a great part where okay, so Tintin, you know, every once in a while, a guy will run over and 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 attack him and totally overpower him and throw him in a cell. Right. Right. So he meets the Maharaja, and this tiger attacks them. And Tintin puts a straight jacket on the target tar- tiger and like single handedly restrains this tiger. <laughs> it is. He's just that awesome. Again, it's the he story has... of the times. You know he what? Has... Tintin is Batman. Tintin had fifteen minutes to think about how to beat that tiger, whereas the guys with sticks, he never sat down and thought about how to beat them. Obviously. I guess so. Hermit says, I grew up on Tintin as well as everybody else I know. It's practically required reading when you're a kid in French Canada. You can't go to a house without It's Canadian, seeing... by the way, I'm Stephen. sorry. You can't go without reading French-Canadian bacon. You can't go to a house without seeing at least two to three albums on the shelf somewhere. Somehow I never liked it. There's some cool bits here and there, a couple of albums I like, but as a whole, I can't get into it. I think it's too chatty for me. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of chat. There is a lot of we have to explain things, yep. but... You know, I would say we're chalking it up to our panel limitations of, you know, he only mm-hmm. had so much space in a newspaper to put this stuff out, so you have to compress stuff a lot. Yeah. And and when he when he says albums, he doesn't mean like compilations of, right. of strips. Right. No. See, for a minute, I thought he was talking about Rush, because I have that same problem <laughs> with Rush. Two or three albums on the shelf somewhere, but I never really, you know. Uh, Rico They're says- Canadian, too, by the way. Rico says, it's not the worst thing I've ever read, but it's darn close. As far as French comics go, Asterisk and Obelix had this beat hands down. I don't see anyone spending $20 to go see Tintin the movie when it comes out. Well, I don't Mm. think it's going to have any immediate comic book cachet, which is, I think, what people might be counting on. There aren't, you know, I'll admit that there are some. And all three of us had read Tintin. Right, but I don't think that there's a huge, you know, legion of Tintin fans out there just salivating, waiting for this movie. Well, and that's why they're releasing the movie overseas first, almost a month or more before it is released in the United States, because they know they're going to make their buck overseas than they are here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tech Rogue says that brings back memories of grade school sleepovers with with uh, with friends. Of mine, we would stay up and read all the Tintin comics his parents and grandparents had picked up over the years. And that's what I find fascinating is that parents would keep these things for years upon years upon years and have them on the shelves to kind of hand down to people. Um, Tech Road goes on to say, Thinking back, I think The Adventures of Tintin was actually my first point of contact with the world of comic books, predating my discovery of both Spider-Man and Sonic the Hedgehog comics by a few years. Although I haven't read them in 15 years, I still remember how impressed I was at the depth of the series, but honestly, I'm not sure if it was mostly due to when I read them and comparing them to their so-called chapter books uh, on, uh, let's see. One tends to read at oh, that age. Oh, one tends to read at that age or actual depth, but the impression has lasted even now. He says he mentioned Tintin to one of his older co-workers who grew up in uh, Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and she perked up immediately at the mention of the Belgian boy with those eyes and that white dog that I was always with him. Another great example of comics bringing time and space together and bringing people together over that what did you guys think of this story i mean we're here laughing and and joking at the at the Mm -hmm. time of it but you know i was reading through this and i was just getting kind of frustrated at times going man this is like time compression to the extreme Mm -hmm. and some things that just didn't make sense but you know when we put them into the terms of this was a story written in 1933 it was modified in 1955 
and it was modified from its original French French version into English, and so there's got to be some translation loss there. And then, of course, this generational change, this time change of reading it. So, mm-hmm. you know, overall, I I kind of like it. I'm glad I bought all seven volumes because I'm sure my son is going to get a kick out of this when he gets a little bit older. I figure mm-hmm. I'm going to get him started on this like when he's five or six. I think he'd get everything. Mm-hmm. He's going to hate comics. You know that. Oh, I know. <laughs> he's going to be a, a gear monkey or something. Greasy no, monkey. no, no, no. He's he's going to be a, a chartered accountant. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I I really enjoyed this simply because – well, for a, a couple of reasons. From just a, a structural viewpoint, it really points out some clever use of the limitations of the comic strip medium. Right. And it shows – I mean it shows somebody dealing with interesting stuff. It's fun. It's you know, it's self-propelling. There's not a whole lot of you know, Sturm and Drang. It's not you know, Dark Side capturing Batman and then having Batman die only not – die and you know it's it's no more outlandish than the stuff that we read and accept every month right i mean you know one of the most popular books in america right now are the adventures of a canadian guy who may be immortal but grew up in japan and has metal bones and also claws which he always had but it turns out he might not have had them but they're also metal and his son has different claws are you talking about william shatner (laughs) yeah i'm talking about shatner but this is i mean when you look at anything out of context, it's ridiculous. This right. is funny. This is exciting. You know, this is a story that mm-hmm. reminds me of watching, like, you know, Ron Ely movies or, or, or you know, it reminds me of Mutual being a kid home, huh? and not understanding and not realizing how, where the cliches of the story are going to take me. Because I, there wasn't a moment in this book where I went, okay, this is where we're going now. All of a sudden, there's an elephant, and now he's riding an elephant. Oh, wait, he's in an insane asylum. Wait, it turns out he's actually in the deserts outside Rhodesia. It's, you know, it's exuberant. And it's one of those experiences where it's such a, a personal creation, I think. You can't help but like parts of it, even if you look at the weaknesses, even if you look at what now are some dated racial characters and characteristics and what now are some plot lines that we've seen a million times before? It you know it it has basis for a lot of different things. I can see where you know Scooby Doo echoes bits and pieces of this story, and I oh, can yeah. see like the reference to the Popeye that we referred to earlier. I can see the influence that this series and this artist had on you know things as diverse as Gru. Mm-hmm. You know, things today that we take for granted in comics, he was, you know, creating some of these these archetypes. He was creating some of the tropes. And, Rodrigo, I swear I'm going to beat the snot out of you for putting that word in my vocabulary someday. <laughs> that's I, all, I said that's tropes all right. at work the other day, and everybody looked at me like a dog listening to a flute solo. But this is – I don't know how to, how to really describe it. It's not historical but it's it's a document of not just one but two different points in history to the point where it was revamped 20 years afterwards and now 50 years down the line we're reading it and looking at the revamps and seeing how the revamps you know are are still out of date but it's fun to read it just as as a document of where we've been before it's like you know going and reading some stuff in the basement of the library just to see what it's about yeah it's it has an entertainment value all of its own well i think what 
what's good about this series is it's got the staying power, just like Asterisk and Obelisks mm-hmm. do. You could not go into a public library today and be able to find, you know, Detective Comics reprints mm-hmm. from, you know, 50, 60 years ago and expect people to be reading these with the fervor and, and fascination that people do with Tintin. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really should be credited to this to this piece. I think, and 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 at the risk of of upsetting some people, you know, I, 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 I was reading this, and I never once thought, well, oh, oh okay, well, it's because this was written a hundred years ago, right? You know, the 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 racial thing, I did a little bit, but the story, the story never felt irrelevant. And there are things that are out right now that have been around for a lot less time that, to me, feel irrelevant. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I see. I, I kind of don't want to say it, but I see the previews all the time, and I was like, "Why is anyone still reading Archie?" Right. Archie does not have. Archie has been the same comic it has always been, except now they they put on now now they have like blackberries on the cover, and they make the same ridiculous joke right. that they made. About computers, well, because it's and good about... and wholesome, exactly, and, and that's and that's all it's got going for. Archie it. never get hit, gets hit on the head. No, but Ar- he does have two girls. Archie, Archie gets hit on the head all the time. <laughs> he not what, not no, by heroin mean. dealers though. <laughs> oh, but I beg to differ. I don't Archie know if you read any Punisher. of the Spire Christian comics with Archie, <laughs> but there's drugs and sex and horrible things galore that Archie gets exposed to, and then immediately saves with the power of Jesus. But well, there you go. <laughs> so maybe maybe I'm reading the wrong Archie comics. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is Tintin never feels irrelevant. It right. is it is almost like pure distilled adventure, a very distilled, oh, and that, that's all yes. you're getting. You're getting yeah. no nothing adventure. else. You're just getting and, pow, and then pow, at the pow. end, he's like, "I wonder if there will be another adventure in a week next Sunday on yep. page three of the Times." Yeah, and well, <laughs> you know, for a serial and for something that that has such choppy pays and has to because of the medium they do a good job i mean you you have all these little tiny adventures that all string together into a bigger adventure right and you don't see who the big bad guy is in this adventure and and that sets you up for the 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 larger um dare i say oeuvre (laughs) (laughs) well but that's what's so fascinating the tropes of the oeuvre the tropes of the oeuvre that's what's so great about this because in this volume that i have which binds uh, america pharaoh and the blue lotus when you start into blue lotus it takes place like days after in the same location that cigars ends Mm -hmm. he's still in india he's still trying to figure out what's going on with uh god it's gonna be exhausting to be then again he does take a lot of naps and you know what he gets conked on the head he's supposed to be a reporter he never we never see him filing a story i mean here's a guy that cracks not only a drug smuggling but also a gun running that should be front page story he is still trying to get back to belgium (laughs) from cracking his first case and reporting on it scroll brian said he really got bored after the first two pages of this issue, but he said his son really, really, really got a kick out of this. Well, so Scroll Tim? Brian is a scroll. Well, that's true too. <laughs> I think we should take everything that Scroll Brian says as though it came from ap- opposite land. So he really, really loved it, but his kid didn't. But his so kid who, hated it. who is? Who do you think right now, as we wrap up the show, who who right now is really a good target for Tintin? Adults. Really young kids, tweeners, teenagers. Yeah, don't tweakers. say tweeners. I would say probably adults. <laughs> okay. Because I can imagine that 
Well, and Rico said, and I, I imagine Rico, I don't know what Rico's like, but in my head, Rico is probably 19, 18. And it's not something that's really aimed at kids. And the kids are going to see nothing but the anachronisms and the strange, you know, things and go, well, this is stupid. Where's my Blackberry? But I don't think that, you know, a, a teenage mind is going to think that it's relevant the way that we do. But I think someone, you know, maybe a little younger than Rodrigo is probably the perfect age for that. If if you have an appreciation of comics and what they do, this is a good way to look at some of the comic strip evolution mm -hmm. and also get, you know, kind of a rollicking two-fisted adventure. I think it's awesome, but then I'm like a thousand. I, I would bet that six to ten-year-olds would just eat this stuff up. Because mm -hmm. I, I remember, you know, getting, again... Uh, asterisk and Cleopatra. When I was a young kid, my parents or my grandparents had brought it back from Germany, and so I was reading this German comic book. I didn't know what the words were, but I was fascinated by the art and what was being drawn into this. And twenty, thirty years later, I finally get the English translation, and I found it just as wonderful as me trying to decipher the German translation. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, when my kid hits five, he's starting to read Tintin. I might even start him sooner on that and just see what his, what his reaction is. So I think this younger set, and again, maybe like you, Matthew, this older set, I think might be mm -hmm. perfect for, for this. Uh, I think, uh, I think you're right, Stephen. I think younger kids, um, would have the most appreciation of Tintin. I think adults, uh, even, even if you're like, okay, I am an adult and I actually have control over my suspension of disbelief. Right. Um, I know what pulp is. I'm just going to get into a pulp mindset. There are still things that are going to crop up that are going to take you out of the story. Right. I think for kids who just have nothing going on that, that, that isn't just like, what is this? What is this? What is that thing? What is he doing now? Right. Right. Um, right. We'll, we'll get the biggest kick out of, uh, out of yeah. Tintin. I kind of found Hang it on a, a second. I have to me. help the neighbor kid jump over the fence. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I found this, you know, he's going to bounce off my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found this, you know, a little boring for me. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, it wasn't perfect. I thought it was good. I thought it was interesting, but I didn't find it as something that I was like, Oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. Now well, and again, set me back 20 years. It, it has a lot of cliffhangers. And but I would have said this we... is great and awesome. We understand that those cliffhangers aren't right. really cliffhangers. Right. We already right. know that, of course, Tintin's going to make it. I have 36 more pages to read. <laughs> well, and this is only the fourth in 20 volumes. Exactly. So. Um, you know, overall, I'm, I'm going to give this, uh, this story four slices of meatloaf. Nice. Rodrigo, what about you? I'll give it... I'll give it three and a half, and that half, that extra half, is only because anytime Tintin surprises, it goes, "Hello, <laughs> hello, what is this?" It reminds me of a uh, sock baby. I don't know yeah. if you guys have seen it. Yeah. Like it, it, it always, I always think of him as Ronnie Cordoba being like, <laughs> "Hello, Snowy, what is this?" Hello, Tintin, we are on a boat. Hello, how did we get here? I don't know. What do you wait? Wait, what's with no hello? Oh, we're on hello now, <laughs> Matthew. I would go with four slices of meatloaf solely because it 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 wasn't like a, an engrossing piece that I couldn't put down, but it was fun and it moved me from bit to bit. And I, you know, there were points where I tuned out and went, "Oh, look at the Arabic stereotypes," and then they'd catch me back in. I'm like, "Wait a minute, why is he in the insane asylum?" Right. And I'd backtrack a page. Now I read it, and I think the ideal way to read it is a little bit at a time. Yes, you're probably Because when right. I was a kid, I read maybe two or three pages at a time, and I never really got the fill-in because I didn't ever read a complete run. It's probably responsible for my completism in terms of comic book collecting now. Yeah. So damn, damn you, Herge. 
Damn you, My Arg. spare room. My spare room is stacked 10 foot high. I'll get you. Well, but, uh, I am happy that I read this. Okay, I'm glad I'm expo- exposed to something different. Okay, I think people should be exposed to different things. And you know, these little, these little brown books, it's little comma brown. That's the publishing company. I think they're perfect. They're like digest sized. They're hardback bound volumes. So you're not reading like a full comic book size. You're not reading an album size. But I think this is great for young readers. And to have seven bound volumes of it all sitting nicely on the shelf, this is going to make somebody a nice collection. I, w- I would check that out uh, if, I were, if I were you. You're like obsessed with finding something that uh, appeals to young readers. I, I am because I know I have a young son and I want him to experience the but joy he's of going comic to books. hate comics. I, I think that was the case on the day it's he the was law. born. I was sitting in the hospital holding him in my arms and I was trying to read uh, Silver Age Flash to him <laughs> and he just <laughs> fell asleep. All right, everybody. He was- <laughs> Uh, yeah. You're right. a terrible, <laughs> terrible father, and you must be destroyed. What, because I was trying to read him Silver Age, Very Allen the Flash? It's relevant. Hey, everybody, Look, thank you Mason, so much. He feels that he's being turned into a puppet. <laughs> no, this is the one where I'm reading The Adventures of the Golden Age Flash. Boy, I sure wish I had superpowers. Bah, lightning, I have superpowers now. I shall So call you're reading the, the story of a man reading the story? Yes, yes. Of a man? Yes, that one. That wow. one. And All you're right, reading everybody. this on the important day of your life when your son is born? Yes, because, you know, you can never start early enough, soon enough. Well, to that get your proves kids. right there, folks, <laughs> that we love comics, and we know you do too, and we'll see you next time. Yep, and next time is going to be on Saturday. We're going to be, I'll be talking with uh, Dr. Peter Coogan about the Com- Comics Arts Conference at this year's San Diego Com. Uh, don't forget, check out the website for more reviews, news, and interviews, including a great review that Rodrigo did about the Eberron Player's Guide from Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, be sure to keep your ears open for the first Major Spoilers Dungeon Crawl <gasps> that should appear right here in this feed in a few weeks. Next week, this is a was this a Matthew and Rodrigo suggestion? Yes. Next week, we will be diving into New X-Men, the Grant Morrison run, which I believe started out with issue 114 and runs all the way through issue... Like 151? Yeah. Something like, Something like that. It's a big long run. We've got it here. It's the ultimate collection if you want to go pick it up in, in a paperback. Those of you that know me know I am wishy-washy on Grant Morrison, and I'm even more wishy-washy on the X-Men, so it'll be interesting to see what my take is on this, as well as longtime X-Fan Rodrigo and Matthew. That'll be next week on the show because, actually next Tuesday, because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we will talk with you next time. Hello. 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 What's this? Hello. What's this? Hello, Snowy. What are you doing? If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash Majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash Majorspoilers. Fat Dick's revision of Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page would be backwards I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus as soon as the comic book store guy knew They kicked my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler 
about a better way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Start raving rich like a man of iron. Might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the hard cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read up on all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fine me in the Middle East with a gang sign throwing soldier. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler, wow, 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 what a major spoiler. Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009.